Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 40. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at the remarkable Symphony No. 6 in F Major, Opus 68, The Pastoral Symphony, a work that appeared to signal a new direction for Beethoven's symphonic writing, one based on extra-musical inspiration and clearly demonstrating programmatic devices. Beethoven was, as we know, ambivalent about overly literal program music up to this point, and he remained so even during and after the composition of this work. But you'll probably recall that there were earlier works by Beethoven that have been described in programmatic terms, at least to an extent. First of all, speaking in more general terms, Beethoven's student Carl Czerny described Beethoven's compositional process as one in which he would always establish the overall character of a work before proceeding, although this obviously falls short of signaling a programmatic intention. But the second movement from his early string quartet in F major from Opus 18, with its supposed reference to Romeo and Juliet, was one such widely cited example which comes a little closer to what would then have been regarded as a programmatic approach. The slow movement from the fourth piano concerto, with its possible reference to the scene from the Orpheus legend in which he successfully wins over the Furies, is another, although one which is by no means universally accepted. And the recent symphonies, the many military references in the Eroica Symphony, presumably connected with the work's initial dedication to Napoleon. And even the Fifth Symphony, with its widely cited struggle against fate, these two famous works are seldom described as programmatic as such, and yet they do seem to have been inspired to some degree by extra-musical considerations. Wellington's victory, on the other hand, is as blatantly programmatic as any battle piece of the period, but it is a later work, very much a work composed for the market, and Beethoven himself tended to put that work in a separate, less than serious category. And the fact is that none of the earlier examples I've just pointed to really seems to be comparable to Symphony No. 6, not in the degree to which it exploits some rather literal programmatic devices. And these devices can all be traced back to Beethoven's fondness for enjoying nature on long summer walks in the country, far away from the bustle of Vienna. As Beethoven said in a letter written in this period, I look forward to it with the delight of a child. What happiness I shall feel in wandering among groves and woods and among trees and plants and rocks. No man on earth can love the country as I do. Thickets, trees, and rocks supply the echo man longs for. And this love for long walks in the country has, in this case, led to the title for the symphony of Recollections, or Reminiscences, of Country Life, and each movement being labeled with a description of something experienced on one of those walks. Movement 1, Allegro, the awakening of cheerful feelings on arriving in the country. Movement 2, Andante, seen at the brook. Movement 3, Allegro, merry meeting of country folk. Movement 4, Allegro, thunderstorm. And movement 5, Allegretto, song of the shepherds and glad and thankful feelings after the storm. I referred earlier to Beethoven's ambivalence about programmatic music, and even here he seemed to be of two minds on the matter. He considered for a while suppressing the programmatic titles, noting in his sketchbook for the symphony that the hearer should be left to find out the situations for himself, but ultimately allowed the titles to be printed in the score. He also qualified the overall title for the symphony with the words, an expression of feeling rather than painting, on the back of an original manuscript first violin part, thought to be an exact repetition of the inscription on the score. And Beethoven made references to feelings twice in the descriptions of the individual movements. Let's move on now to the music itself. 
The first movement, labeled as Awakening of Cheerful Feelings on Arriving in the Country, is in F major to four time and marked Allegro ma non troppo. Before we hear an actual performance of the first subject, I'm going to present some of its thematic components in simplified form. Here is the first four-bar phrase, starting on the tonic and ending on a fermata on the dominant. It's a cheerful little, somewhat rustic-sounding melody played by violins over a very rustic-sounding open fifth interval played by the lower strings. The melody is almost immediately broken into shorter motives and mixed in with new motives derived from the original ones. For example, a motive consisting of the first four notes of the phrase is almost immediately lopped off and heard as an independent motive played by the second violins in the second phrase, which I'll play in a minute. Here's that opening four-note motive as it appears in the second violins. Above that motive, we hear the first violins introduce in measure 6 an idea that sounds a lot like the third measure of the first four-bar phrase I played earlier, because it employs a similar mixture of eighth notes and sixteenth notes, but it's not quite the same. I realize that I'm right on the cusp of making overly complicated a thematic idea that's supposed to strike us as charmingly simple. But there is genius at the core of this simplicity, and it is no easy matter to generate a theme which is subject to so much repetition or near repetition and still manages to sound fresh. Here's an actual performance of both phrases, the first eight bars of the movement. The second half of the first subject begins very differently. Instead of lively little rhythmic motives based on eighth and sixteenth notes, we hear a more sustained melody in longer note values that has almost a hymn-like quality about it and, as such, looks ahead to the final movement, which isn't really a hymn either, but evokes the feel of one. But after three bars of this more sustained melodic idea, the quicker little motive first heard in measure six peeks its head in. After the first three bars then repeat, that more mercurial motive slips in again, but then launches us into a lengthy and rather repetitive extension of the dominant chord based on that motive, one which initially crescendos but then diminuendos to pianissimo. All of this really turns out to be a transition to another version of the first half of the second subject, which now seems really continuous and put together for the first time. It's heard over a tonic pedal and appears first in the oboes and then supported by clarinets and horns. Eventually, horns and strings join the party and the texture thickens considerably. When the central thematic idea is finally exhausted, the prolonged tonic pedal yields briefly to a dominant chord. We hear a variant of the theme played in thirds and used as a tag. It's not an exact replication of those earlier motives, but it is clearly based on them, and it continues even as we return to the tonic.
the texture thins considerably for the modulatory transition, which is clearly based on the first four notes of the movement linked together to move up the scale, played initially by the first violins against a new triplet-based repeated chord pattern in clarinets and bassoons providing harmonic support. As we reach the end of the transition, and it is not a long one, only 14 bars altogether, that same opening motive is heard in the second violins and cellos, but inverted. The second subject, in the expected key of C major, is actually a little more generic than the first, based on a legato flow of mostly descending triadic arpeggios in the first violins, against broken chord accompaniment in the violas and seconds, and more sustained notes in the cellos. After four bars, the most important melodic activity migrates to the second violins, and four bars after that, the cello takes over, with the original cello part in longer notes moving up to the first violin. It's all very quiet and gentle, one might even say lulling, but we eventually crescendo, the accompanying eighth notes proceed to triplets, providing a little greater sense of urgency, and the solo clarinet takes over the main melodic activity with a flute hovering above it with the original bass line, up three octaves. repetitive lulling theme has seemed as if it were building up to something, perhaps the real second subject, and what comes next, we'll call it the second part of the second subject, does seem like a more distinctive idea, but it is also a very derivative idea, and it clearly is derived from the first theme, measure six in the second phrase, to be exact although here we encounter that motive in both original and inverted form. After four bars, another new idea is introduced, a descending scale line harmonized in thirds, piano and dolce, although again you could argue that it isn't really new, but in fact derives from the descending line heard in measure two of the first theme and again at the end of the first subject that section which I referred to earlier as the tag that delivered us to the beginning of the modulatory transition. The rhythmic configuration is different here. We begin with quarter notes followed by eighth notes, rather than eighth notes followed by sixteenth notes in the earlier example. But the proportions are similar, and who's to say that Beethoven wasn't thinking of one when he composed the other? But the context is different here, and I'm not sure that most listeners would immediately make the connection. Still, even when it may not be obvious, the links which Beethoven forges between the different themes and sections are certainly noteworthy. We think of the opening movement of the Fifth Symphony when we think of virtually non-stop motivic development, but this first movement comes surprisingly close to matching that more famous movement in that respect. As you heard at the end of my last excerpt, after the second subject is played out, we enter more or less seamlessly into the closing section, clearly marked not just by another emphatic cadence in C major, but by the introduction of recurring triplets in the harmonic support. 
But even here, we're exposed to motives clearly derived from the first subject, repeated again and again in the first and second violins. Eventually, as the volume decreases to pianissimo, the same motives, or at least their rhythmic clones, are transferred down to the lower strings. But as we prepare for the repeat of the exposition, that initial motive from the first measure of the movement again takes control. I've mentioned the persistence of certain motives, or variants of those motives, in the exposition. But that persistence is, if anything, even more extreme in the development section. You heard how that four-note motive that began the movement, from measure one, played such an important part in the exposition. Now, in the development section, you're going to hear not only that motive dominate, often two or three versions linked together in an ascending pattern, but also the motive from measure two, to which it was originally connected. In fact, it's that motive from measure two by itself that echoes through the development section in an unprecedented manner. We're used to development sections at some point building up a level of dramatic intensity, usually through the interplay of motives and often breathtaking plunges into remote keys. But that is not what happens here. This development section is unlike any earlier symphonic development section Beethoven ever produced. Rather than building up to a level of dramatic intensity, it proceeds with remarkable tranquility and not a little direct repetition of the first two measures of the movement. Here's the first part of the development section. Beethoven does not run through as many key areas as you might expect in a development section, but there are some shifts, including the one you just heard in my excerpt from B-flat major to D major, a so-called chromatic mediant relationship because the two tonal centers are a third apart. A similar sort of key change takes place later in the development from G major to E major, going down a third this time. But none of these modulations are really dramatic events. They just provide a different colored lens through which we hear the repetition of the same ideas over and over again. There is eventually a bit of a departure from all this gentle repetition when Beethoven introduces the second phrase, measures five through eight, in various keys, even somewhat unexpectedly, into G minor right before we begin to make our way back to the original tonic for the recapitulation.
all the main themes return much as expected in the recapitulation, although now all in the tonic key of F major, of course, with long drones on tonic, once again the order of the day. The coda is neither long nor particularly blustery, although it does build up to fortissimo at one point. But it is very charming in its final, affectionate glances at the motives from the first theme, especially those offered up by the woodwinds. But we are going to move on at this point to the second movement. The second movement is in B-flat major, the subdominant key typical for slow movements, in 12-8 time, and marked andante molto moto, and initially piano. It is rather like a sonata form movement, but with some departures from the norm. Beethoven immediately introduces two central ideas. The first is presented in second violins, violas, and a pair of cellos with mutes in an undulating flow of eighth notes in thirds. This is, of course, meant to represent the rippling of the stream. The composer had actually notated a different phrase for this purpose in his notebook while out on one of his walks, but he later changed it to the one you'll hear, not necessarily because it was a more accurate depiction of the rippling stream, but because it was simply a better musical idea with more room to develop. The second idea is manifest initially as a six-note motive entering on beat four of the measure, consisting of sixteenth notes moving quickly up a third from its starting point, initially the tonic note, and returning to it as the note values lengthen. As the undulating motive continues beneath it, the six-note motive is heard three times before it blossoms into a noble-sounding, broadly-arching phrase leading to a cadence on the tonic. This first part of the first subject is six bars in length, and Beethoven then repeats the idea with clarinets and bassoons taking over the sixteenth note motive, and the first violins adding in a trilled figure on the tonic note, the first of several references to bird calls. At that point, we encounter a new thematic idea, mostly scale-wise but introducing a new articulation pattern, that we may initially hear as the second part of the first subject, or perhaps even the beginning of the modulatory transition taking us to the second subject. But it never really leaves B-flat major, even as it extends its original, rather lovely three-bar phrase with some overlapping between first violin and clarinet and later flute. It swells up in volume briefly, but then retreats back to piano, with hints of the undulating brook theme and a much reduced texture, which concludes by highlighting some very quiet horn fifths in a triplet pattern, doubled by clarinets.
we probably expect the introduction of a whole new idea at this point, but what we hear is a return of the first part of the first theme. But the undulating flow of eighth notes has been replaced by broken chord sixteenths, although the sense of gentle motion remains intact. And even though the first violin's sixteenth note motive is again present, we are clearly headed in a new direction, which is, of course, the key of F major and the second subject. The flow of sixteenth notes in the lower strings continues even as the first part of the second subject is introduced on the dominant seventh chord in the new key of F major. The melody, a highly florid one, is presented by the first violins, with abundant grace notes and rapid arpeggios. We crescendo briefly and then decrescendo when the flutes take over with a new motive in eighth notes that acts as another cadential tag, cementing the new key of F major, reconfirmed when the bassoons then repeat that tag. Here's the abbreviated and altered return of the first part of the first theme, which becomes the modulatory transition, and then the first part of the second subject, followed by the cadential tag. I refer to the cadential tag confirming the new key of F major, but that tag is interrupted by a little tonal side trip, which you may have noticed right at the end of my excerpt. The dominant chord, which was expected to resolve to the new tonic of F major, resolves instead to a secondary dominant that seems to send us off in a new direction. And this happens to coincide with part two of the second subject. Let's hear the rest of that second subject, presented by bassoons and later violas and cellos, which begins with a leisurely undulating ascent up the scale three times before crescendoing and moving to broader triadic motives. The harmonic progression for this thrice-repeated measure follows a circle of fifths progression, each chord acting as the dominant of the chord that follows it until we finally end up back in the expected key of F major. It also features more bird call trills, this time assigned to the second violin. As you noticed, we do eventually stabilize tonally in F major, as a variant of the last two bars of the second subject is taken up by the woodwinds, fading with a new duple motive back down to piano and landing on the dominant. We naturally expect a cadence on the tonic chord at this point, but instead we encounter a return of the secondary dominant sequence. It's cut off after only two bars this time, 
but it has, in the meantime, picked up a clever little reference to the first violin 16th note motive that we encountered in the very first measure of the movement, although here the violas and seconds trade the motive back and forth. Then, with more broadly triadic motives, repeated in first violins and woodwinds, originally legato but later staccato, we hear a prolongation of the dominant chord again, looking for a tonic chord but not immediately finding one. What we do find is another reference to the first subject, in a lovely little codetta. We encounter part two of that theme first, passed around between the strings and eventually woodwinds. And then we hear a reference to the first part of the first subject, the undulating rippling motive, and a variant of the original 16th note motive in first violins as we finally land on the tonic chord in F major and dwell affectionately upon it for a couple of measures as the exposition comes to an end. The development section is, quite naturally due to its babbling brook scenario, devoid of dark or dramatic climaxes, although there are some very clever chromatic modulations that take place, hinting here and there at deeper waters. But although the development section may lack the customary sense of urgency, it is again quite rich melodically, starting in the opening measures with a new theme, but one clearly inspired by the second half of the second theme. And then the undulating theme from the opening measures returns, and soon after, the sixteenth note motive also heard first in the opening measures, but here assigned to the woodwinds. We soon hear more pastoral-sounding lyrical passages in thirds featuring oboes and flutes. In fact, the whole mood is again very relaxed throughout the development, which concludes with an extended stay on the dominant, embellished by even more trills. The main themes are encored clearly enough in the recapitulation, mostly in the original tonic of B-flat major. But there are some fascinating new details, as for example, the addition of the two-octave, sixteenth-note arpeggios that echo gently through the texture and which Beethoven claimed was inspired by the song of the Yellowhammer. I am only going to play the recapitulation of the last part of the codetta going into the new coda. It's a brief one, and it is directly and specifically programmatic, Beethoven quoting the songs of the nightingale, quail, and cuckoo in turn, clearly identifying each in the score. And then, in the final bars, a breathtakingly beautiful final reference to the first theme.
The scherzo movement is not marked as a scherzo, but instead is titled Merrymaking of the Peasants. It's a delightful movement with more than one surprise up its sleeve. The first section, back in F major, 3-4 time and marked allegro, begins with an 8-bar theme based, after an initial pickup note, on a repeated motive of three staccato quarter notes with an initial descending leap followed by an ascending step. This pattern is then moved down the notes of the tonic triad, repeated three times on the third of that triad, and then continues the descent, eventually ending on the third of the chord an octave and a half lower, hinting at D minor in the final measures. It begins pianissimo, played in octaves in the violins and violas, but adds grace notes and accumulates additional texture as cellos and later double basses are added into the mix. The second eight bars, now in D major, introduce a more lyrical dolce theme that is also anchored on the tonic triad, in this case the new tonic triad of D major, but it proceeds with an initially ascending motion, although it does share some motives with the first idea. The strings still operate mostly in unisons and octaves, but the solo flute has joined in, and the horns add some heft to the sonority by repeating the tonic note against the melodic activity above it. After eight bars, we revert back to F major and repeat the opening eight measures, and then the second eight measures in D major. At first it appears that we're going to start the process all over again, because what we hear next sounds a lot like the first eight bars, but now in D major, as the opening motive is tossed around between the strings and the woodwinds. But the real function of this passage is actually to bring about a modulation, this time to C major, where the more lyrical dolce theme from the second eight bars is reintroduced. But we're not through with the first eight bars or with the key of F major, both of which return. We then crescendo to fortissimo with plentiful sforzando accents as we head toward a new thematic idea. You heard a little bit of the new thematic idea at the end of my excerpt, and it turns out that it's really just going to be a transition. We're still in F major at this point, and this new transition theme begins with a powerful descent down the scale and then moves to a very heroic series of chords that cadence on F. And then Beethoven does it all over again ending this time with even more heroic-sounding horn calls and flashing arpeggios from the strings, skyrocketing upward for three octaves. And where do all these heroic gestures take us? Probably not where we'd expect them to. If it's not already clear from what has happened to this point, this movement is all about a country dance, or more accurately, a group of country dance tunes. And now, as the texture is considerably reduced, we are about to encounter a little village band of the sort that might well have provided the music for the merrymaking of the peasants, perhaps even at a local tavern. And Schindler left little doubt that Beethoven's intention was to summon up exactly this oral image, as he provided a lengthy description of the idiosyncrasies of the little country band, citing Beethoven as his source, of course. 
As always, it's hard to separate Schindler's and Beethoven's views on these matters, but it's clear enough that there is some quirkiness here, and it's probably meant to suggest the eccentricities which one might associate with an untutored and rather casual group of rural musicians. The accompaniment pattern for this section, provided initially by first and second violins, is very simple, the two groups providing quarter notes in thirds to outline the basic harmonic support. The solo oboe introduces the melody after four bars, but seems to have gotten off on the wrong foot, or at least the wrong beat, because the simple tune he offers up seems to have downbeats and ties across the bar line in all the wrong places. The bassoonist only pops in sporadically to provide a bass line for the occasional cadence. After the oboe has made a couple of goes at the tune, the clarinet jumps in with a slightly different version, moving to C major for a while, and later the horns contribute as well. So is the bassoonist dozing off between entrances, too inebriated to really play his part? Is the oboist incapable of finding beat one? That's what Schindler and a host of later commentators suggest, and it's certainly true that Beethoven is striving for a comic effect here. Eventually, as you heard, the texture broadens out, and we finish up back in F major, and the section ends with a brief transition to the next section, in 2-4 time. This next section, marked with a double bar as well as a change in meter, is often described as a trio, although some commentators opt for the whimsical section you just heard as the true trio. But this one features a new melody, possibly a version of a pre-existing folk dance that Beethoven had first notated while working on the Eroica Symphony. It's certainly a robust, if rather repetitive, theme played in unison by first and second violins, beginning in F major, but tilting toward B flat. It's played fortissimo with downbeat accents and features multiple repetitions of eighth notes followed by two sixteenths, but it also makes use of ascending sixteenth note runs in the third bar of every four-measure phrase. The accompaniment from the lower strings and woodwinds is quite simple, alternating tonic and subdominant chords, although the flute adds some decorative triplet arpeggios when the first eight-bar melody is repeated. After 16 bars, we switch to C major, with the melody moving down to bassoons and violas. This time, the repeat of the melody leads to a jaunty little codetta, sporting a new countermelody in the upper woodwinds and grace notes in the first violins, although we hold on to the original melodic idea to the end of the trio. The trio concludes on a fermata, and predictably, we now move on to a repeat of the first section of the scherzo. But it's by no means a full return. It begins as in the original version, although some melodic details are changed, 
and the alternation between F major and D major is curtailed. This time the tempo is elevated to presto as we hurry toward the little codetta section. The heroic horn calls are back again, and even the yellowhammer's call is squeezed in. But then, quite unexpectedly, the flow is cut off. And of course, the thing that has so unceremoniously cut off the merrymaking is a ferocious storm. It's in common time marked allegro and will eventually settle down in F minor, at least briefly. It begins with cellos and double basses rumbling away on a D flat, a surprise in and of itself. It's pianissimo representing the distant rumbling of thunder. A quiet melodic flow of staccato eighth notes in the second violins suggests movement. The storm is heading our way. The first violins, also softly, introduce a three-note fragment prominently featuring a tritone leap, always a sign of foreboding. Soon the rumbling moves up to D natural and then another half-step to E flat as the melodic activity is repeated. Shortly thereafter, the basses and cellos are up to E natural, and the basses break off in order to provide an even more ominous rumbling motive. It's clear that something dramatic is right around the corner. And then it breaks. That's just the beginning, of course. It should be said that although Beethoven's storm is in many respects an impressive one with a notably visceral effect, it is not a completely original one, based on the musical materials he relies on. Much of what he does here might be thought of as standard operating procedure, the fortissimo dynamics, the plentiful diminished seventh chords, the swirling chromatic scales, the blasting trombones, the intermittent fortissimo timpani rolls, the rapid ascending motives low in the cellos and double bass range adding to the general sense of chaos. A somewhat similar section from Haydn's oratorio, The Seasons, is often cited as an influence on Beethoven here, and there were plenty of other models to consult. So Beethoven's storm is not completely original, but it is very effective, especially in context. It's not known for melody per se, but some important motives do emerge, other than the first violin motive I mentioned earlier. The first to draw attention to itself is a descending triadic figure in the first violins that covers three octaves. The first time we hear it, it descends through a tonic F minor chord, but after that, it's based on more tension-inducing diminished seventh chords. A little later, another distinctive motive appears, this one usually assumed to depict streaks of lightning. 
The lightning strikes occur only sporadically at first, and we do encounter brief passages where there seems to be a slight lull in the storm as the dynamic level recedes to pianissimo. There are other repeated motives that play an important role, although they are less distinctive. Some combine scale passages with triadic arpeggios, often expressing diminished chords. Others move down the scale, starting with a series of descending leaps, but ending with stepwise motion. Meanwhile, we seem to be changing keys from time to time, but not really in conventional ways. We simply jump from one key to another, which of course adds to the general sense of agitation. Here's another excerpt where the rumbling of the thunder seems more distant for a while, but we soon begin to crescendo and we experience a series of lightning flashes preceded usually by loud timpani strokes. After a lull in the storm, it begins to build in intensity again, bringing back some of the motives we heard earlier and some new ones, most notably one based on swirling chromatic scales. But I'm going to jump now to the end of the storm as it begins to recede. It does so gradually, with little flashes of lightning still evident, even as the storm seems to be moving away. And that brings us to a transitional passage. Even as the last hints of rumbling can be heard, we are introduced to a new, serene melody in C major, marked dolce and shared between oboe and second violins, which, although new, could be seen as related to the opening staccato motive of the movement. But since the context has changed from that point to this, it wouldn't be surprising if the listener would not make any connection. At the end of the passage, a gentle ascending scale from the solo flute takes us to the brink of the finale. The final movement in F major in 6-8 time is marked Allegretto and Pianissimo. It's described in the score as Song of the Shepherds, glad and thankful feelings after the storm. It's introduced by the solo clarinet playing a lilting, triadic-based theme marked dolce, based on what is often characterized as a yodel motive over a dominant chord, which is expressed by open fifths in the violas both of these things being decidedly rustic gestures. After four bars, this idea is passed to the solo horn, but at that point the cellos enter, also playing open fifths, but this time based on the tonic chord rather than the dominant. This results in a complex combination of tonic and dominant chords, and it raised a few eyebrows. This sort of dissonance was by no means unknown in the early decades of the 19th century, but Beethoven seemed here to dwell on it a bit longer than usual. (music) 
and then the first main theme of the movement is introduced in first violins, accompanied by sustained chords in clarinets and bassoons and a pizzicato bass line provided by cellos, with the violas also providing a sustained, more linear accompaniment. This theme is different, but also triad-based, and certainly serene, if not quite hymn-like. After eight bars, the melody shifts to the second violins, an octave lower, and violas join with the cellos and basses in an interlocking pizzicato pattern, while the first violins add a quicker moving pattern in broken thirds against the melody. Soon the music crescendos and the texture becomes more dense, as clarinets and bassoons adopt a triplet pattern for their repeated chords. As you could hear at the end of my excerpt, the theme is repeated again, taking on a more heroic cast as the lower strings take their turn with the melody, augmented by horns and woodwinds. When it finally cadences on tonic for the third time, we move to a new transitional theme, quite a nice one, incorporating gentle, short-long syncopations and large ascending leaps which reach higher and higher as the phrase builds. Here's the conclusion of the third time through the first main theme, moving into the transition. Now, if you think of this as a sonata form, it's a confusing one. The transition I just played made use of several interesting melodic ideas, although the last two of them really sounded more like embellished cadence repetitions than full-blown independent themes. If we think of the transition in a sonata form as accomplishing a modulation to the key of the dominant, well, it does that, and the last musical idea you heard... clearly appears in the key of C major. It's just that it doesn't really go anywhere. The idea repeats up a step, and then the entire four-measure pattern repeats. Actually, it does go to an attractive little codetta area, and that little codetta goes into a miniature development section, really just a transition passage that takes a few seconds to develop the yodel theme and then introduces a slightly modified version of the main theme back in the original tonic of F major. And what may be even more puzzling is the fact that the repeat of the theme rather quickly abandons F major to head for B flat major, 
And then we hear what Sir George Grove calls the second subject proper. And it is, as Sir George says, a perfectly proper second subject, a charming, if somewhat naive one. It's in the wrong key if you think of this as a sonata form, but that's a small matter since this is obviously not a classic sonata form movement. It's an extended continuous theme with a well-developed melodic shape, much of it presented in thirds and sixths in the clarinets and bassoons, but with most of the rest of the orchestra contributing as well. And, as you could hear near the end of my example, this proper second subject eventually moves on to something of a development section. The key of B-flat first slips into D-flat, and then, after just a few bars, into C major. The yodel motive is heard first, and then a new idea, a flow of staccato sixteenth notes takes over against the yodel motive. That sixteenth note flow is heard above a long pedal on C, and it becomes increasingly clear that the C will be functioning as a dominant in the original key of F, which will be our ultimate goal. When we arrive there, the key of F major, we don't hear the original first subject in its pristine form, but rather its outline as suggested by the flow of sixteenths in the first and later second violins. We're even treated to a bit of a fugal section, something we probably wouldn't expect early in a recapitulation. But then this is obviously no ordinary recapitulation. It becomes somewhat more ordinary as we proceed to the transition and then second subject and codetta, all in F major. We then encounter a lengthy coda made up of numerous subsections where the first theme and yodel motives are examined anew from multiple perspectives. Beethoven doesn't really carry the programmatic narrative throughout this movement, as he does in the storm movement, but you wouldn't really expect him to. He provides melodic material suitable to the programmatic theme of the movement, and then proceeds to build a movement around that material, and some interesting auxiliary themes. We're going to close this episode with one final observation about the importance of the pastoral symphony. I quoted Swafford in a previous episode to the effect that Beethoven was not a romantic, and he wasn't a romantic, at least not in the sense that a composer like Robert Schumann was a romantic. But that doesn't mean that Beethoven did not influence the later romantics. And his Symphony No. 6, with its myriad programmatic implications, influenced a great number of later romantic composers, although some of them took very different lessons from the work than others did. But that's a matter for another day. For our next episode, We'll look at two piano trios from Opus 70, composed in 1808, the so-called Ghost Trio in D major and the trio in E flat major. <laughs> 